I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Clash of the Titles, the podcast that sees two movies with something in common go head-to-head to see which one does it better. And welcome to part two of this week's Duel of the Detectives. On Monday's episode, Jack Nicholson snooping got him into a whole world of pain in Chinatown, and today we're back in Los Angeles, albeit over ten years later, to see if Guy Pearce and Co. can save the city's reputation after some grisly murders in 1997's L.A. Confidential. The Night Owl Massacre. This is a heinous crime that requires swift resolution. Six victims. One of them, one of our own. There's something wrong with the Night Owl. I just can't prove it. We'll have a champion at the end of the show, but which film will it be? Let's find out. It's Clash of the Titles. Release the Kraken. Hello, Clash Potters. Don't start trying to do the right thing, boy. You haven't had the practice. I'm Alex Zane. I'm Vicky Crompton. I'm Rollo Tomasi. <laughs> <laughs> Roll old to Massey. Uh, yo, these were Chris's choices. So uh, he gave Vicky Chinatown. We did that on Monday. That was great fun. Thank you. Enjoyed that. Which means you gave me LA Confidential. So today I will be your eyes and ears around the seedy underbelly of 1950s Los Angeles. After crime boss Mickey Cohen is locked up, a vacuum is created in the world of organised crime in 50s LA, and someone is trying to fill it. But who? After a series of multiple murders at the Night Owl Diner, a trio of cops, for varying reasons, make it their mission to find out. Guy Pearce's career-driven righteous crusader, Ed Exley. Russell Crowe's punch first, punch again later, Bud White, and celebrity cop Kevin Spacey's Jack Vincennes. What follows is a tour of the dark side of LA, with hookers cut to look like movie stars, entrapment rackets with Danny DeVito's sleazy tabloid hack Sid Hutchins, and a lot of bloody murder. How's it gonna look in your report? It'll look like justice. That's what the man got. Justice. You don't know the meaning of the word, you ignorant bastard. Ladies and gentlemen, for your consideration, L.A. Confidential. Right. Very good. Yeah? Happy? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah. <laughs> you, you, don't sound, you nailed it. You nailed sound sure. No, you nailed it. Thanks very much. Uh, so what are your previous experiences with LA Confidential? Chris? Ah, uh, big fan. I watched this when it came out in 97 and I loved it. Bought it on video, watched it a few more times the next couple of years. Oh, so this is a multiple watch video. Yeah, this is one of my favourite films of all time when it came out. I was excited. I was a big fan of uh, disgraced actor Kevin C.D. Spacey C.D. <laughs> um, I, uh, I like the director. It was just, it won the Oscars, I think, by the time I saw it. it was, oh, no, it hadn't. It hadn't because it came out before the Oscars in the UK. Mm. I was just a big fan of this one. I liked the time period. I liked the plot. I liked that it got me into reading some James Elroy. Um, yeah, super fan of this. Victoria? I also love this film. Mm. So I saw it and I loved it, but I didn't quite understand what had happened, so I haven't read the book. Then I read the script and I was obsessed with the script for years. Yeah, you were saying this, I don't know if it was on the show, but when we were talking about this last week, you were saying that this script you learnt so much from. Yeah, because it's it's very tight, but it's also very detailed. Beautifully detailed where it needs to be. But interestingly, for me, the character descriptions are really sparse. So when you think about how much life those actors bring to those parts... It's, it's fascinating that that's not overwritten in the script. Mm. So Bud is just, I think he just says, oh, he's a tough guy, but he's earned it. That's it. And it's like, okay, cool. And Lynn is just a glamour girl who belongs in the movies. And that to me is amazing because they then it gives the actors a lot of show, don't tell to do with the characters. So what you're saying when you're talking about those descriptions is when you're reading the scripts, that is what it says next to their name as they're introduced in the screenplay. Yeah. It's as simple as that. It's that. That's all. That's wow. all it says. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And when you think about the amount of detail that um, that the writers have put in, so Brian Hagelland and didn't Curtis Hanson have a pass, or did he co-write it? I can't remember. Co-wrote yeah, it. they co-wrote. Um, it, yeah. But you know the yeah you've you're you've got an expert guide showing you through that world, lobbing detail at you, and yet it still hangs together as a really well-told story, mm. which is really really accomplished. I watched it. I was a teenager, I think, when I saw it. I don't exactly remember when, but the one standout thing for me that I took away from watching this movie was Russell Crowe. Yes. This is one of those films where I saw an actor for the first time. This is the first movie I'd seen Russell Crowe in. And I immediately went, well, there's a movie star. Mm. Dumb. There is a movie star. Was, and what a calling card. He was really heavily hyped in the run up to this because I remember when The Quick and the Dead came out, everyone was talking about this new Australian actor who's going to be the next big thing. Mm. And then that flopped. And then the next film he did was Virtuosity. Mm-hmm. This Australian actor who's <laughs> going to be the next big thing. And he's terrible in it. <laughs> I love the film, but he's terrible. It's a, it's, bad, it's a good, bad film. And so this was when he finally proved that Romper Stomper wasn't a fluke and that he could be the next big thing. That's it. I'd only seen Romper Stomper, so he made sense to me in this one. Sure, sure. But in the book, in the book, he's a giant Bud White. And so Crow thought he didn't have a chance of getting the role. Mm. And they weren't sure about casting him because the bloke is supposed to be a physical giant. Mm. And Russell Crowe isn't. Yeah. Acting. Um, yeah. I mean, you. It's called acting. <laughs> you would watch this and go, a terrifying giant uh, of a man just because of the way he plays the role. Uh, a little bit about how this came to be then. Uh, Warner Brothers bought the rights to James Elroy's third book in his LA Quartet series uh, just after it came out in 1990. Brian Helgeland uh, heard that they had the rights and asked if he could adapt it into a screenplay because he was a huge Elroy fan. Uh, Warner's basically said, no dice, Brian. 
no one's saying that they didn't like Nightmare on Elm Street 4, the Dream Master, <laughs> but that doesn't get you a James Elroy adaptation. So Hal Gland, uh, using his own brand of detective work, finds out Curtis Hanson is directing, tracks him down on the movie, uh, on the set of his film, The River Wild. They get along like a house on fire. They both love James Elroy, and they both agree on how to adapt this unfilmable book by reducing its eight, I believe, storylines into just three. So you've read the book, Chris? Yes. Good? Yeah, it's terrific. But yeah, as you say, they did jettison a lot of it. Elroy reckons they adapted only about 20% of his book. Hmm. And they pretty much cut out any scene that didn't involve these three characters or didn't drive their stories forward. So, which, which you had to do. You know, there was there was no there was no way of filming it. It would have been a TV series otherwise. Mm. And by um, by all accounts, James Elroy is very happy uh, with their adaptation. Yeah, he loves it. He's 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 in all the documentaries talking about it. He he refers to the book. He says it, Eddie Confidential is a book for the whole family. If your family is the fucking Charles Manson family, <laughs> he's such a he's such a frightening dude. Um, but yeah, he he believes that they preserve the basic integrity of the book and its main theme. And there's only one thing he's upset about, which I'll get to in my changes. Okay, I think <laughs> it's quite when, funny. I think when he saw it for the first time, I think it was about forty minutes in. He sort of declared it. it's a different piece of art to his book, but magnificent mm. in its own right. Have you read it, Victoria? No, no, no. I haven't read it either. I haven't read it. I did read a few bits and pieces around it. For this, um, but we'll talk about them as we go on because they sound like some major changes. Major changes, yes. Major yeah, yeah. We, changes. Yeah, we'll talk about them. Uh, we touched on the casting of this. Uh, Curtis Hanson had seen Crow in 1992's Romper Stomper, and his quote is he found him repulsive and scary, but captivating. And I couldn't find out uh, whether Curtis Hanson had seen him in 1995's Virtuosity. <laughs> uh, Guy Pearce auditioned. Uh, he'd previously, I guess the biggest film he'd done at that point was Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Uh, Curtis Hanson decided not to mm. watch that, so it wouldn't influence his decision. Uh, I also couldn't it, find out if he'd seen any of the 496 episodes of Neighbours <laughs> well, that funny. Guy Pearce was in. It is funny. He said he cast him because he wanted someone that audiences wouldn't know. But if you were of a certain age in England, everyone knows who Guy Pearce is. Yeah. And so it just doesn't work for a particular demographic in a couple of countries. Yeah. He was Mike Young in Neighbours, although I never watched Neighbours. So I didn't, I wasn't oh, aware of it. No. No. Yeah, him and playing Jane Superbrain. Well, <laughs> it was a love story for the ages. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, what are you they talking were, about? They were a hot couple. <laughs> they were. Well, she was geeky, but she when she took off the glasses, guess what? She's pretty. Yeah, when she put her hair down, she looked completely different. Yep. Yeah. Plain Jane, super brave. Uh, but like you say, um, both of them were pretty much unknown in Hollywood at this point. Uh, and Hanson cast them for this reason that we have talked about on this show <clears throat> before, which is that you don't know them as they arrive on screen. Uh, the audience has no preconceptions about the kind of characters they were going to be because they weren't film stars at that point, which I think is always exciting. Yeah, Always exciting when you're seeing someone for the first time. And it was certainly my experience of watching this. No idea what kind of characters Bud and Exley were going to be, especially with Exley at the start being quite dislikable. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, Hanson, uh, his own words on this are, he wanted to replicate his experience of the book you don't like any of these characters at first, but the deeper you get into their story, the more you begin to sympathise with them. I didn't want actors, audiences knew and already liked. 
So those two roles uh, were filled by Guy Pearce and Russell Crowe without too much pushback from the studio. Um, Hanson now needed some actors to put in the foreground of the poster. <laughs> so step forward, Kim Bassinger and Kevin Spacey, who, despite having smaller roles, are literally five times the size of Guy Pearce and Russell Crowe on the poster. <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess Spacey is coming off the back of an Oscar win. Mm-hmm. So uh, the studio said no to his casting. And then when he once he won the Oscar, they said yes to his <laughs> casting. Um, and yeah, I guess you could say Kim Bassinger's career was on the wane at that time. Yep. But she was, you know, a household name, a well, a recognisable face. And, and the other one's Danny DeVito as well. You know, potentially the probably most famous person in this film. Yeah. Well, I, don't, I don't think made the poster, though. It's, I, well, I remember, you remember, it was a really iconic poster. It was Kim Bassinger, really up front, then Kevin Spacey, then Guy Pearce, and then Squint, and there's yeah. Russell Crowe right, <laughs> right in the back there. Uh, the only final thing I, I'd like to mention uh, is um, the look of the film, because it's an incredible-looking film, and Curtis Hansen said he didn't want this to be an exercise in nostalgia, uh, so he had his cinematographer... Dante Spinotti, who did the incredible cinematography on Last of the Mohicans, shoots it like a contemporary film. And that makes it accessible for me, who doesn't like old movies. Well, it's very bright, <laughs> yeah. isn't yeah. it? You you associate uh, <clears throat> film noir with darkness, and there's a lot of... I mean, there's there's brightness in, 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 in Chinatown when you've got a lot of stuff to do with the water, but it's it's also pretty dark, whereas this film is, is not a dark film. Mm. Um but interestingly, of the casting, the other thing I would say is that is that although none of the actors look like their characters in the book, mm. none of them do. <clears throat> Elroy says now that when he goes back to read those books, he sees these people and wow. not, not who he wrote in the first place. So that's, that's interesting. That's interesting as just a reader of the book, like a, a, a member of the public who's picked up a book and mm. then you start seeing the actors from a film when you're reading the book. But mm. as the author yep. of the book, you've clearly got an image of what they look like in your mind. And Especially to when he wrote them. four books in the series. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, now I guess when he does readings of them, he's seeing these guys. <laughs> so shall we uh, go through this film? Let's do it. Uh, all right, so... We begin with uh, some narration. Danny oh. DeVito, <laughs> yeah, setting up the situation as he writes an article for Hush Hush, the gossip and scandal magazine based on the real-life gossip and scandal magazine Confidential that was around in the 50s and redefined celebrity journalism. So I timed this uh, narration, 2 minutes 30, are you happy with that, Victoria, or do we have another layer cake on our hands? No, it's a long one, but it's not 10 minutes, is it? No. So, And it's, it is needed, I think, because of the amount of stuff it's got to get through. And it's very entertaining. It's entertaining. Yeah, I don't know if it's all 100% relevant. It's just yeah. fun. It, it, it starts the film off on a very different note to, to where it proceeds to. But interestingly, this is um, the presentation. That, that voiceover is the presentation that Curtis Hansen gave to the studio to get the green light. Mm. He took and he, and the cast. He took them to the Formosa, which is still there in in Santa Monica. Some of the film is shot there and he had photos and newspaper articles and he would do this presentation, show the photos, show the articles uh for 10 minutes and that would tell the story of LA Confidential in his words 
and that's what got the film made. So it's I, I think it was very personal to him to get that into the opening scene. I got a bit confused with all the different locations because I know some of them are still there. The Formosa is what doubles as the Night Owl in the movie? Is no, that- no, the Formosa is where they make the mistake with Lana Turner no, and Johnny okay. Sampanata. Yeah, it's this <laughs> right. very cool bar um, right. where you can sit down and have drinks at booths. Um, and actually that presentation he has now done, it's on the DVD and it's on YouTube, I'll post it, but you can watch the presentation that he uses to get the film made, which is really cool. It's a great scene setter for understanding the world of LA yeah. in this moment. And the big takeaway is that this crime boss, Mickey Cohen, has been jailed and the big question mark over the film is who is it trying to take his place? So from the off, we're mixing fantasy and reality because Mickey Cohen was real, Johnny Stompanato was real. It's interesting, but the characters that we're following in the film are not real. And those characters, our three main players, are introduced really quickly. Uh, Bud White is up first, Russell Crowe's character. Uh, He is stopping a guy who's beating his wife, um, from which we find out uh, Bud White hates that. He hates it. He hates it. Show don't tell. So what's fantastic about the three characters of Jack Vincennes and Ed Exley and Bud White is you've got Jack on one side, who is possibly bad, but more lazy and vain, right? Then you've got Ed Exley, who is completely good, righteously good. But then in the middle is Bud, because Bud wants to be good, but Bud is bad because he does bad things. But he will go above and beyond to do the right thing by women. Um, so when he, when he you know intervenes in that domestic and then gives her some money, he doesn't need to give her the money. That's a big character tell of like, go and get yourself sorted kind of thing. Yeah, it's a great intro where the husband comes out and goes, who the hell are you? And he just goes, the ghost of Christmas past. <laughs> I'm like, that's a cool intro. That's cool, yeah. I'm already in love with your character. Yeah. Your vi- violent, violent character. Yeah. Uh, next up, Jack Vincennes, Kevin Spacey's character, like you say, loves publicity, not mm. above taking bribes to further his fame. Arrested Bob Mitchum, they say, and famously Bob Mitchum did get arrested for smoking weed. And was on the cover of Confidential magazine, yep. the hush-hush equivalent, yeah. And then we get Ed Exley, who is, like you say, he's very, very good. But he's also quite dislikable with his good. He's one of those people that would just annoy you if you, like, they're so righteous. And they're yeah. so, like, you know, when he doesn't take the $10 bribe mm-hmm. from Kevin Spacey's character, he's like the white knight of the LAPD, believes in doing things honestly. Uh, and shortly after that, uh, those are the three main guys. He's just one of the, he's also son of the legendary. Preston, Preston actually. Yeah. And yeah. I think that is super important. The more time I watch it, the more important that seems to become, especially if you're trying to fill in blanks around this version of the story as to actually what happened to Preston, which I'd like to talk about later. But yeah, so he is trying to live up to that. And that's, I think, part of the reason why he, he behaves in the way he does in terms of being as good as gold. Mm. And then we get uh, introduced uh, to uh, Kim Basinger's character uh, who enters the film, enters an off-licence dressed uh, as uh, the Scottish Widow's advert. (laughs) I've got festive Grim Reaper. (laughs) But that's not in the script. Excuse me. That's the interesting thing. In the script, she's got her hair in a handkerchief, so she's meant to look like she's getting ready for a party. So she's she's not this... that's an early version of the script. It's like from 95. But the distance travel between I've just got my hair knotted up <laughs> to Scottish Widows, Festive Grim Reaper is is immense, obviously. Well, why Russell Crowe doesn't go, I've already done the Ghost of Christmas Past joke, so oh, <laughs> that really should have been yours. Yeah. That should have been yours. Yeah. Uh, so then uh, the plot sort of starts in motion with Bloody Christmas, uh, which really shakes things up for all our main characters uh, after loads of cops uh, led by Bud White's partner, Dick Stensland, uh, who, FYI, never as a man seemed like a corrupt cop more yeah. than him. He screams corruption. Uh, so they go and beat up some Mexican prisoners uh, and 
Guy Pearce decides, right, I'm going to testify against them. But then this is what's interesting about this scene is there's a lot of talk in the film about um, when the the sort of the heads of the police, like we're doing this for the people of LA, we need to do these things, you know, we're representing the people. So there's a lot of talk of the people, Mm. right? But the people are absent from this film because even the Mexican men that are in prison, they are, they, what happens to them is unjust, but they have beaten up a cop. So they don't represent pure good people in that sense. Like they've committed a crime. And then later on, the rape and kidnap victim, she isn't even as pure, as good as you would kind of need. Like she does lie. She lies for very understandable reasons, but she still lies. And then even later on, you've got the actor Matt, who is innocent in this. But when you first meet him, he's being busted for smoking weed. So even his innocence is marred somehow. So where are these people that everyone is doing all this stuff for? All right, Ed Exley. (laughs) (laughs) He smoked a bit of weed. It is weird that they're like, oh, hopheads prowling the streets. It's just a bit of weed, but fine. And then Danny DeVito is quite obsessed with like the narc division. So when Kevin Spacey is on... Mm. Vice, Danny DeVito's like, I don't give a shit about that. It's like, why do you not give a shit about that? Like, yeah. imagine all the fun stuff that he's going to see. Mm. But they're just really into drugs. Uh, my favourite bit of that punch-up, though, is Jack Vincennes is not getting involved in the punch-up until someone gets a bit of blood on his shirt <laughs> yeah. and then and then he loses it. And it's yeah. a, that's such a great character moment, though, to, to sum up his vanity. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, it's a big no-no to testify against your fellow officers, but Guy Pierce, he's a white knight, and he goes, I'm going to do it, but I want a big promotion. So, Are, are you truly prepared to be despised in the department? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he's so matter-of-fact about it. <laughs> yeah, and like you say, Spacey loses his cushy job uh, on the show and uh, in the narcotics department, so he's not getting those tasty bribes. He's told that Bud White will fuck him for the rest of his life over this. <laughs> Again, he doesn't care. Yeah. Great, it's just great. I love that hardboiled dialogue, though. Yeah, because it's 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 quite extreme, but it's believable enough that it's, it's so juicy and fun to hear. And it's obviously fun for these actors to deliver as well. They're all having a ball. And at this point, I was I took a moment. I was like, I'm already really gripped by this film. Again, I've seen this before, and I'm loving this. And I think it's because the film walks a really fine line between like not being too convoluted for an audience to check out and go, "Oh, sorry, what's going on." Uh, and not laying everything out on a plate for you. Mm-hmm. It's like you feel clever watching this film and going, I am following this. <laughs> so we get to the big turning point, which is the Night Owl Massacre, which is like something out of a fucking horror movie. It's uh, really grim the way he makes his way into that back bathroom following the trail of blood, and there's the pile of bodies there in the restroom. And we also, around this point... um get the burgeoning of Bud and Lynn Bracken, Kim Massinger's character, their romance. Uh, and we learn a little bit about what she does and who she is. She explains uh, to Bud that Pierce Patchett uh, runs the Fleur de Lis, an escort agency that specialises in sex workers cut to look like famous movie stars. I find that expression quite difficult. Yeah, to, it's nasty, um, isn't it? Yeah. 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 It's uh, the the use of the word cut uh, mm. is unpleasant there, uh, but it's not all bad because they, in her words, they still get to act a little, and he doesn't beat them or let them use narcotics. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's part. Of, that's good. It's a, and it's a very the, so Russell Crowe is so is superlative in this scene when he meets Lynn and she's explaining that she's meant to look like Veronica Lake and he says, it's, cause it should be a really cheesy line, you look better than Veronica Lake. But the look on his face, <laughs> he is surprised that he said it and he's surprised that he's allowed 
to... Well, yes, because he's just spent about two minutes basically calling her a whore and using that word. <laughs> yeah. And then the fact he doesn't tell her she looks like Veronica Rake, all's forgiven, and she's <laughs> in love with her. But not she's quite. In love with him. Yeah, but not quite. So if you watch this, like, watch the scene with, like, with this, and I went into it sort of cold and was so impressed again by Russell Crowe's face acting mm. because... He goes, you look better than Veronica Lake. And then she's a bit like, oh, okay, that's cool then. Um, but he's surprised that he said it. And he's like, oh, shit. And he sort of wants to take it back because that's a vulnerability because he's like chatting her up, whatever. Then when they go to the door, he asks her out on a date. She reverts to type, which is what she's paid to do, which is to be a coy flirt. So he's like, we should go out. And she's like, well, I should know your name first. And then he's like, forget it. Just forget I ever said yeah. anything. Because <laughs> he's been exposed. She's done what she's paid to mm. do. He's seen that. I am not seeing the real you. I'm seeing the Veronica Lake impersonator. And I don't, I don't want that. But obviously he really does. And that scene is amazing. It's a brilliant scene. Yeah. It's a brilliant scene. Um, uh, the next scene, I think, is, if not as brilliant, more brilliant, uh, which is when they uh, they finger three guys for the Night Owl murders. Um and we get this interrogation scene, which is magnificent. So they've got the three suspects in separate rooms and Guy Pearce, um, with James Cromwell going and watch him work, he's actually going to be really good at this. And he, he flicks the microphones on and off so they can each hear. But as this is progressing, you realise he's trying to ask them about the Night Owl murders and it becomes apparent. We're drip-fed this idea that actually there's something else going on here. And these guys think they're being collared for a woman that they have trapped somewhere and had sex with and may still be trapped there and may be alive or dead. And the growing tension and the expression on Guy Pierce's face when he's like, no, actually, wait, what are you talking about? Because mm. that's not what I'm talking about. What is this? And then Bud White, because he does not like violence against women. Or chairs. <laughs> he loves violence against chairs. I can't believe he snaps a chair. <laughs> he snaps it's a ridiculous. Chair. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Because at this point, you're like, we get it. Yeah. You are not into that. And that is great. But then he's like, oh, yeah. it's, it's, I think it's just, it's a Hulk moment. It's emphasising the Hulk thing. I was what I was going to say. He is a blunt instrument. Yes. That they just have to point in the right direction, <laughs> like they learn to do with the Hulk mm-hmm. in in the Marvel films. But what's brilliant about that scene as well, and what does up the ante and the tension, is Dante Spinotti, who came up with the idea of showing everyone's reflection in the mirror, mm. in the glass, so you can okay. see the people watching it all unfold which I think it's Guy Pearce or Russell Crowe we're talking about. I didn't really understand what he meant or how it was going to work. And then when you watch the film back, it's amazing because you can see all these different levels of everyone realising what's happening at different points. Mm. It's just it's just brilliantly shot and, and so well crafted in, in terms of um, g- giving out the information. It's wonderful until the, the very end where I feel it, it, it's kind of spoiled by slipping into cliche because the bit where Bud White enters the room and drops all the bullets from yep. the chamber of the gun bar one and mm-hmm. then spins it and puts it in the guy's mouth. First of all, like him going, where's the girl? When you've got a barrel in someone's mouth, they're like, duh, 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 duh. it's like, it's like rule one of don't have the gun in their mouth when they're trying to, uh, jokes have been done you can't about just that. write it out. Yeah, <laughs> Pictionary. So that doesn't work for me. And then I, I was trying to sort of think about this idea that he's got a bullet in the gun and he pulls the trigger twice. Are we to assume he knows what chamber, what part of the chamber the bullet is actually in at that point? Or is he basically willing to kill this guy, which seems self-defeating in the sense that the guy will no longer be able to tell him where the girl is and also he will go to jail because you can't shoot a suspect. So I'm a bit confused about that. Do you think he knows where the bullet is or he's just lost his the, shit? The fact they haven't shown you or established it, it's, it's, it's for you to decide, hmm. Alex. 
What do you think? I think he dropped all the bullets out yeah, and just made it look like there was a bullet in I the gun. I think so too. Mm. Because I think a lot of this film is Bud and us realising that Bud isn't as stupid as he thinks of he course, is. Of course, that's what it's all he about. He thinks he's a dumb idiot and he isn't and that's very clever. The, to well, go back to that, the look on his face again, face acting. When he's in the... You just call it acting. Or just <laughs> acting. Yeah. Face acting. His face does a lot of acting. Is he not moving any other part of his body at that point? Is that why... He's, he's not that... speaking. Right. He's his still, hands. He's, no, no, no. It's in his face. Right. So when he's in the restaurant with James Cromwell and he's off, yeah. he's been suspended for his part in beating up the Mexican men and James Cromwell says to him, I can get you back on the force... And his little face, because he is a little boy, really, still trapped on that radiator, horrendous story, whatever. And his face lights up and he says, like, working cases? I see, I can't do acting, but it's like that. Mm. And James Cromwell's like, don't be daft, beating the shit out of people. And he instantly reverts back to, oh, that's what everyone thinks of me. That's what I'm good at. And he's like, of course, sir, you know, I've no problem with that. Mm. But in that one moment, his face is like, I'm going to be a real detective. And it's heartbreaking. It's great face acting. It is. It's great. If they ever <laughs> if they ever bring back the actor's studio... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you need to host that and just talk to it. Talk to Sean Penn. Just be like, Sean, your, your face acting. Let's talk face acting. You're second only to Russell Crowe. And, and, and I, when you answer, I don't speak. <laughs> you don't need to. I, I actually understand your answer without words. That was incredible. Ladies and gentlemen, face actor you know, Sean Penn. Just think of? Johnny Depp said that he had lines fed to him on Pirates of the Caribbean 15 or whatever it was uh, not because he couldn't remember his lines but because it allowed him to do better face acting. <laughs> <laughs> Which, maybe that's where I've got that's it from. funny. Yeah. Yeah. If only that was the biggest Johnny Depp story out there. <laughs> There's a lot I'm not saying. <laughs> um, but you mentioned uh, the woman who is tied to the bed who they, they rescue in the next scene um, and uh, she's called Inez mm. and actually in the book the love triangle between Bud and Ed is with her, right? Not with Lynn Bracken. They they switched it around, and so she did, did actually have a much more important role in the novel. Oh, okay. And it just completely got cut out, so she's just a victim in this film. Guy Pierce has his um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer moment, where he kills the suspects, and all the other cops love him. Uh, yeah, <laughs> like it's it's it, he becomes Shotgun Ed. Yeah, but that's the scene, isn't it, where he puts the shotgun in the lift. Yeah, is it that scene? There is that scene. So my issue with this, which is very nitpicky, is that's meant to be the moment where he's like, I've become the thing I said I wouldn't become, right? Because yes. I've shot a suspect in order to stop a lawyer from asking tricky questions. We but also he shoved his gun in a lift yeah. and he can't see who he's shooting and there could be someone else there in that be, lift. And we're, maybe we're meant to think he shot him in the back, which is what James Cromwell says to him earlier, but then maybe not because of the payoff with James Cromwell at the end. But I, did, I didn't see it as a moralistic slide as much as the writers wanted me to see it because... It's just the city doing to him exactly what James Cromwell said would happen. He, When he sticks the gun in the lift, he isn't doing it for his own gain at that point. He's doing it because he really believes that that man is the criminal that he's after. Do you know what I mean? He's mm. not doing it to cover his tracks. He's yeah. not doing it for publicity. He's doing it because he thinks in the moment he's done the wrong thing for the right reasons, which is what James Cromwell said he would have to do. So later on, when he's like, he's sort of saying to Russell Crowe, I can't remember the scene with the Rollo Tomasi scene, to Kevin Spacey, where he's like, I've become something, you know, that I'm not happy with. I don't really see that. And I don't think that scene does that for me. OK, well, we'll discuss that more right okay. after this break. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool, yeah, I sort of see what you mean. Uh, yeah, because it's only much later on that he is, he has that moment of the revelation where he's like, uh, actually, yeah. uh, I think I might have killed the wrong guys. Yes, I don't at, think at that point in time, he thinks they did it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, while all this is going on, uh, Bud and Lynn's relationship is escalating and they sleep together in a really sweet way. Now, I might have misread this, but it appears to me she sort of takes him from the staging area yeah, to of, her bedroom. of her place to her private bedroom yes. where she would not sleep with a client normally yeah. because uh, we learn that she's actually... Um, a really quite wholesome person and we learn that through embroidery. Do we do? Because she doesn't get to say it. <laughs> because embroidery, wholesome. Yes, it yep. equals She just wholesome. wants to open up a dress shop. She and does. that's it. So this is a, she. So she won an Oscar for this, didn't she? Not for this scene, but for her She whole, did. She, yeah. did. she did. And she is amazing. 
But yeah. it's the classic scene, again, like with Chinatown. They sleep together. Tell me about yourself. And Russell Crowe tells the most horrific story that you've ever heard in your life, which is his dad killed his mum and he had to watch and he was chained to a radiator well, and he was there for three days. That's right, yeah. She was dead. Um, his dad, this is word for word. He goes, he beat her to death with a tire iron. I was chained to the radiator next to my dead mother for three days. Now, it's important character building stuff for uh, Bud White, for Russell Crowe's character, is it post-coital pillow talk? <laughs> is that the right moment? <laughs> After you've just made love, do you go, i got a story for you. Oh, so, I've got a story for yeah. you. She's, she, <laughs> she's dead. She's th- three days next to my dead Do you know what happens mother. to a body of a do you, want, do you want to go again? So <laughs> when he, are you back in the mood? When he said he's not that smart, this suggestion that he really isn't. Doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Imagine saying it, just leaning in for a second kiss. Three days. Get up! A tire iron. <laughs> oh, dear. On a more serious note, he gets to tell his story, but she doesn't get to tell hers. And she gets... she Her character, you don't know anything about her apart from she wants to open a dress shop, but you don't know why she's there. She's there to give the male characters uh, an emotional journey to okay. go on. Okay. And... Nothing else. Well, I, I think guess it's, that's fine. I think she's getting. I think, I think she's getting quite well paid, and also she didn't have to get cut to play this part. They make a it may, it, I, they make a point of saying that she only dyed her hair blonde. She's a brunette, really, so she does just like look like Veronica Lake. Mm. Yeah. Um. Uh. But I imagine she's making money in Los Angeles. Yeah, because she's going to buy a dress shop. Yeah. But what brought her that? You know, it's about the city of broken dreams and all the rest of it. But earlier on, when she says. We still get to act a bit. Yeah. The implication is surely she came to act and then that didn't work out. So now she's a sex worker and she um, she still gets to act What a I mean bit. is there's, there's not... There's more. There's time in that scene for a bit of parity. He tells the worst story you've ever heard in your life, and she's then supposed to go. Well, guess what happened to me? She'd rather than go. Oh, it look was at my four. Pillow. It was four days. Yeah. It was four. Yeah, I did four actually, mm. which is. Uh... Yeah, and the radio it was on, and it was very hot, <laughs> very hot. Oh dear. Um. Uh, so let's move away from uh, radiator sex. Uh, Kevin Spacey and uh, Danny DeVito are, are busy setting up uh, the actor from The Mentalist. I really wish I'd written down his name. <laughs> Simon that Baker. Really bugging me. <laughs> Simon Baker. Of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Simon Baker. Yeah, they're setting him up. I th- sorry, I thought no one had ever watched The Mentalist. Am I seeing people who watch The Mentalist? <laughs> I saw a lot of the posters. I, I thought it was just one of those shows that exists, but no one actually watches, <laughs> apart from maybe my mum. I think I saw a trailer on Channel 5. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, he uh, he. Uh, they've already screwed him over once, ruined his career, and now they're telling him that he has to go and have sex with the DA. And this is it for Kevin Spacey, for Jack Vincennes. He's he's had a change of heart, uh, and he's become something he can no longer uh, deal with. And um, you know, uh, another bit of a cliche. He realizes this by looking at himself in the mirror yeah, and <laughs> questioning yeah. what he's Who become. Am I? He <laughs> looks at himself in the mirror quite a lot in the film, though. It's not just a one-off. There, it's it's something that he. I think it's a character trait as well. Mm. But I, I I agree with with um with what you say. It's it's quite cringeworthy watching uh disgraced actor Kevin Spacey in this role. I yes. think um in terms of. He's playing a character who's presenting a public face that's very different to his private face. 
Um, and we're getting to look behind that mask. You know, he says to someone, this can be our little secret. Mm-hmm. It's very creepy. And it, I think it ties in with actually two or three of his most famous roles where he did tend to play these very uh, manipulative, unpleasant characters um, below the surface. <coughs> and if you've ever met Kevin Spacey, you know, he was playing himself. It's, it's grim. Yeah. He was my favourite actor at this period. My favourite actor. And I got, up until the point I interviewed him and then all that changed <coughs> when I met him. But um, he's he's so good in this role. But you you look back now and you see he wasn't he was playing himself essentially. Mm. I think very charismatic, but a broken, nasty piece of work under the surface. I uh, I've never interviewed him, but I do you remember- probably won't now. Mm. <laughs> That's not coming up anytime soon. I don't think you should. If he asks, say no. Um, I, I, I the first time I saw this though, I remember being quite impressed with his charisma in the role mm. because. He's uh, on paper. Jack Vincennes is a thoroughly unlikable character who's screwing over this kid who has no qualms about screwing over other people's. But it is Spacey's charm, as I said when I first watched this, that makes you go. He's sympathetic. Like you do, sort of. Well, if not sympathetic, you quite like him. He is. He is. No, he is because when when he asks when they ask him why he's doing the job, and he says, "I can't remember," and the look in his eyes, it's haunting. Like he's he's very good at that. Um. Yeah, the regret and the pain, mm-hmm. um, and and the charisma, as you say. Like they told him, um, Curtis Hanson told him, "This guy's Dean Martin," and he captures that. He captures that cool as well. Yeah. He really does that yeah. swagger. Yeah, this is a point in the film where um, all, our, all our main trio are realizing things. So Spacey's realizing that uh, he's uh, he doesn't like who he's become. Bud realizes uh, he is smart enough uh, to try and find the real night owl killers. And uh, the the lion realizes he's got courage, uh, and it's just like the <laughs> <That's good. laughs> I like that. <laughs> uh, no, sorry, Exley uh, has to accept he's not infallible and might be wrong, and justice hasn't been done, and the real killers of the night owl are still out there. At which point, a, a movie that has already been fantastic to this point just goes up a gear as we enter this final act. It, it's incredible. Uh, moment after moment. Uh, we start with a little bit of levity, which is <laughs> beautiful and just relaxes you before the horrors to come. But that Lana Turner scene is mm. just is just great. Yeah, it's amazing that it is funny because we don't know who she is, obviously, because no. it's not Lana Turner. Yeah. So it could fall flat because we'd be like, oh, God, well, how are we supposed to fucking know? But it doesn't. It does. She's with the gangster Johnny Stompanato, who yeah. Lana Turner was married to in real life. Do you know that story? No. Yeah, he was married. She was married to this gangster, and he was abusive towards her. Right. And her thirteen-year-old daughter murdered him. No, I didn't she know didn't, that. She didn't get done for it. It was justified manslaughter. Wow. So it was huge, as big a scandal as you could get in Hollywood, and it, it you know, it kind of. Um, it's interesting because Johnny Stompanato is in the script that I read. He's mm. in it a lot more. Because he's not really in this. Mm. Um, he's got that big scene and the Lana Turner scene, but um, he's in it right from the start. Well, I was going to wait for a change, but yeah, this is this, that scene, that moment, which is you know a very funny moment, but also it's a good moment because they get out to the car outside and Ed actually starts laughing, mm. and you just see a different side to him. You're like, oh, it humanizes him. Yeah, and and the fact that Bud starts to like. Uh, Ed around this time well, a bit later in the film yeah. sorry a bit later in the film <laughs> he starts to hate hate it a bit yeah. alright we'll come to that but um, Elroy hates that scene because Lana Turner and Johnny Stompanato didn't get together until four years later okay in real life and so oh, he's, wow. he's still pissed off about that because people think that he wrote that and he didn't 
Well, to go on to why Bud White hates uh, Ed Exley, it's because Ed Exley and uh, Lynn have sex while Danny DeVito photographs them, and you're like, uh-oh, Bud White is going to get you. I'm not sure how much I buy that sex scene between the two of them. I'm, I'm not, not sure. Sex. I'm not sure Guy Pierce he's doing, giving a strange performance. He's kind of snorting through his nose. <laughs> while he's talking to her and it's like is that what you do when you get turned on no because he's trying to be a tough guy because he thinks that's the way to do it because he knows that she likes bud yeah but she he doesn't know right i can't decide still <laughs> after having seen it and read it is the whole thing a massive setup so she was never into bud she's been told to sleep with him and told to like make him think that she really likes him so show him your embroidery <laughs> which is not a, that's, that's a not euphemism. A, a euphemism no that is what Kim Bassett calls it sorry that's just my sort of that's hilarious anyway uh, so it's none of it is real so in order to have leverage over him so that you can set him off like a dog like you need to at any point in time because she's, he's now got this Achilles heel which is his affection for her or is it real and then the way Guy Pierce talks to her is the way that he thinks Bud is which is like to be a big tough guy to insult mm. her to do it you know to uh, intimidate her and not force her but it's not it's not great um, but then she has this shield of and that's what winds him up is that what she, what we believe is a real affection for Russell Crowe because he cannot get through to her in the way that he's trying to and it doesn't work mm. so it makes him angry but then she has to do this thing for her boss anyway I know I th- I I think it's that her affection for Bud is real yeah and then James Cromwell's character finds out about this relationship oh, and, then uses it. and then uses it okay. as a, a, to set Bud off onto Guy Pierce. Okay. I have to believe that because I think otherwise... It's very cynical. Yeah, mm. and it, it changes her character but she completely. Has a, she has a moment in the police station later where he, whoever is apologising to her for what... Because Russell Crowe then hits her and isn't it Guy Pierce that says he, he hates what he's become or he hates what he did? Yeah. She says, oh, I know how he feels. Mm. So what is she talking about there? Is she talking about sleeping with Guy Pierce? Yes. Or is she talking about the whole thing? Oh, I think it's just sleeping about sleeping with, with Guy Pierce. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I think anyway. That's what I think. Um... So uh, then we get uh, the biggest shock of the whole movie. Uh, had you read the book before you saw this? Did you? No. Okay. So at this point, had either of you gone, I think James Cromwell is the bad guy? Or when uh, no, Jack Vincent... No, because he's kindly. Yeah. I mean, he's scary, but he's usually a kindly, right? avuncular man. It, it, well, and, and one of the reasons they cast him is because of Babe. Yes. They said that we, we really feel like audiences are going to come in with such goodwill towards this man that it will really help us in the film and no I didn't spot it coming even though and that's the brilliance of the script you know you watch it a second time he is telling you from the beginning who he is he's very clear about it he's got this homespun Irish you know friendliness and calling people boyo and stuff but actually if you're listening to what he's saying this is a this is a mean nasty piece of work and he's he's hiding in plain sight but it's brilliantly it's brilliantly hidden yeah, it turns out that he is the one who is filling the vacuum created by Mickey Cohen's death and the death of Jack Vincennes. What a moment. Just, I remember the first time I saw it, it knocked me sideways. Mm. Um, it's fantastic. And, uh, you know, it was. It comes at a point where Jack Vincennes is finally trying to do the right thing as well. So you've warmed to him even more. And then just, just out of nowhere, out of nowhere, mm. dead... And if that wasn't enough, you then get that little kicker at the end where he says Rolo Tomasi mm. and smiles. Mm. Now, 
And then you watch the art that you watch him die. So mm. how did he act that? It looks like the face life acting. is disappearing. It's, face <laughs> it's, it's, it's literally face acting. It and is you, face acting. And, and, yeah, uh, and and actually how he did it because when when because he had, you, the camera stays on him even after James Cromwell moves away. Yeah, he ha- he he got one of the um the one of the ads to 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 draw a circle on the wall. Where behind where Cromwell was was standing because he said I just couldn't not look at him as he moved away and so I would just stare at that and that's why you've got this moment where his eyes kind of focus out I guess. Now does he say Rolo Tomasi there because he is like you are Rolo Tomasi? I've had the explanation from Guy Pierce of who this fictional character Rolo Tomasi is the guy who always gets away with it and oh my god you've just killed me and you're that guy. Or does he say it in the knowledge that James Cromwell may repeat it to Guy Pearce in the future yeah. and thus give himself away as the bad guy? I think it's either it's either both, or if you can't have both, it's definitely the latter because right. he's becoming good. So in his final breath, he does one last good thing, which is leave this these breadcrumbs. Mm. Yeah, um, it's a clue. I think one hundred percent, it's a clue from beyond the grave. Uh, well, uh, it's it works because that moment where. He does sidle up to Guy Pearce <laughs> and go, oh, so we're just looking for this, uh, just an associate of uh, Jack Vincent. Does the name Rollo Tomasi mean anything to you? His reaction is incredible. It's really <laughs> good. It's a, it's a really good face acting. It's it, brilliant face acting. Everyone's such a good face actor. It's his best face acting in this movie. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He, he acts the shit out of his face in that scene. <laughs> he really does. It's a little bit sloppy police work because it seems that James Cromwell's not done like a basic check and then someone would say this person doesn't exist. No internet. He's just gone he straight to... He could Google to... Rollo Tomasi. He would have found out it's an indie band. Oh, it's not, is it? Were, uh, yeah, an indie band that named themselves Rollo Tomasi after this film came Oh, out. man. But after the film. That's, that's, that's still <laughs> Guy, Guy Pierce isn't a huge fan. <laughs> what? Van Gogh Rollo Tomasi. Here, I've got an idea for the name. <laughs> it, it, that's interesting, though. Uh, Rollo Tomasi is an invention for this film. It's not in the book. That's true. They made up the plot oh, point really? and they made okay. up the name. So mm. that's complete invention, which is maybe the best plot point in the film. <laughs> yeah. Certainly the most satisfying as a viewer. And, and, yeah. it, and it's, it's new. It's Hansen yep. and Hengeland. Yep. James Elroy James, didn't mention that, though. More about the Lana Turner scene. Four years <laughs> difference. But this is fine. Around this time as well, we see Danny DeVito getting uh, beaten up and killed. Mm. And I think that's interesting as well. We, we, you know, talking about Cromwell and coming with, you know, goodwill towards an actor. It's so painful to watch Danny DeVito get beaten. Yeah, up. it is. And yet he is an evil bastard in this film. But because it's DeVito, I can't bear he's it. He's not evil. He's he just grubby. He's de- no, he's destroying people's lives yeah. and yeah, driving he- them to suicide. Yeah. He's a, he, for his he's own. terrible. Yeah, he's a terrible he, man. He has no. Uh, whereas Jack Vincennes, like, you know, regrets it and goes, I'm going to stop doing this by looking in a mirror. <laughs> Danny DeVito, whether he has a mirror or not, we're not aware, but he does not look in a mirror and go, what have you become uh, and then um, uh, Russell Crowe in uh, one of the connections I believe that was made uh, on Monday's show there's some hitting of a woman now he turns up at mm. her house and he knows that she slept with Guy Pierce, and he hits her twice really fucking hard it's nasty I'm a bit confused by this because like his one thing is that he doesn't like men who beat up women. That's yeah. his big thing. And yet he does it to her. Now, are we meant to take from that that like he loves her so much that he's lost control in that scene? No, well, that's not what it is. 
it's he was raised like that. That's what he saw every day of his life until mm. his dad killed his mum. Mm. So when he's angry, he's reverting to what he thinks is the way to act in that situation. Do you know what I mean? Like that's what he saw. So when he loses control, but not because he loves her so much, he loses control because his power has been taken away from him. It's not about love. Mm. It's got nothing to do with love. Mm. It's got everything to do with power. Mm. So he's the whole film is like, oh, you know, he kind of respects her job. He doesn't give her a hard time about what her job is. Mm. He understands what her job is. But then when it finally comes to it, he doesn't respect her job at all. She was paid to do her job. She didn't do it because she really wanted to, or she didn't even. She's not even showing off and saying, "I had a fucking brilliant time." Actually, she's like, "I was paid to do this thing, so I was doing my job." Like I've always been doing my job the whole time we've been together. But because he doesn't like Guy Pierce, he's lost the power in that moment, and so he reverts back to type. I'd understand that if, like, if he hadn't spent the whole film rallying against people who do just that. It's like, can you really have it both ways? Where he's learnt. Like what his lesson from watching what his dad did to his mum was to not do that and to ensure that no other man did that. But he's yeah. also reverting back to that and doing it himself. But not from a place of love, from a place of anger, from a place of loss of control, from mm. a place of having to share this woman with someone he doesn't want to share her with in his mind. Not because I love you so much. It doesn't make any sense. I love you so much. I'm going to hit you. It doesn't make any sense. No, I guess I, I guess what I mean by that is like he the vulnerability that comes with loving someone so much and having them wrong you. Yes, but lots of people deal with that in different ways. Oh, I know. Yeah, but, but, but he, he doesn't, doesn't because his dad didn't right. and that sort of thing. Like I don't think you know he's learned from his dad, and we don't know anything about that relationship. But we assume it was continuously abusive. It wasn't a one-off mm. incident where he just out of nowhere killed her with a tire iron mm. so it's a pattern of control and all the rest of it and he's tried his whole life not to be that person now it, this, there may be his so, idea of loving their summer which he's never been in this position before because that's never what happened I mean to him. but that's yeah, what that's, I mean I think, I think Alex is right I think you're both saying the same thing pretty much yeah, but I think, I think I think I'm agreeing with you that he's been pushed over the edge by right. this he spent his whole life trying not to be that person yeah but he is that person and this has driven him there yeah, yeah. it would be better if he didn't hit her yes it would be better if he went to do it because that's who he is yeah and punched but, the wall or something yeah just, you know. but, but then that's my point that brings me back to why I don't quite get why that happens I mean I get why it happens but yeah. I just mean I think it, it, it's disappointing yeah. yeah 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 I agree I think he. I think you're right. I think just punching the wall next to her, and you get the idea of like, but for him to still have retained that his main quality his thing, yeah. throughout the film, yeah. he manages to maintain it even when you, faced yeah. with that. You can still show him having lost it because he could go to do it, and she could look like she knows he's going to do it, and that's enough. That mm. is more than yeah. enough yeah. to show that yeah. that moment has that, happened. Because then, the, then the guilt would be there. And, yeah, and of it course. Would, yeah. yeah, he doesn't. Really, he doesn't need to do it. Great. And okay. she brushes it off really easily as well. Like. He mm. says sorry, and she goes, okay. And, Ow. Yeah, <laughs> fine. Um, right then. Uh, so after that, uh, things start coming together. Uh, we start to uh, see Ed and Bird working together after another fight in an office. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. You, you, you realise that they're actually, uh, they're sort of half a good cop, each yeah. of them. And then when they're together, they'll make one good cop. Mm. And, and it's interesting, Guy Pearce and Russell Crowe added this stuff in where... Um, as they're investigating together, as the climax approaches, one throws the other the keys, one throws the other the shotgun. And so they're almost working in unison. They're like a left and right hand working together. The the, the keys bit is really awesome. I think it's when they're in uh, Pierce, his Patchett's house. His yep. Patchett's house. And he chucks them a long way. Mm. And obviously, 
it works in a movie because Guy Pearce knows they're coming. I can't remember which way around they're thrown, but he does do it in this fluid motion where he's not even looking. He turns and just catches them. It's very, <laughs> very cool. And that was them. That was them coming up with that. Uh, uh, they throw the DA out of a window for a bit, um, <laughs> or rather they throw his... Get a better stunt double. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he just He's twice the size. Um, and you can also... Did you see the rope attached to him in that scene? No. Yeah, it's a bit sloppy. There's a bit where he's like hanging out the window and you can see the rope uh, holding uh, him in place. But, you know, I'm being petty. Uh, it, it's still a, a, a great scene. Uh, he fesses up about the whole thing. James Cromwell's the big bad. And then we get uh, the shootout at the motel, the Viceroy Motel, I think it's called, um, which is a very cool shootout. Mm. I kind of wish we knew some of the people out. We've seen them yeah, in passing, point. but yeah. who, who they are, are the just... people outside? They're are they cops? Like are officers. they cops or are they hired, uh, his hired gun? Goons? I, I yeah, it's a good point. We don't, yeah. I don't suppose Dudley's we know. Hired goons. I wasn't sure. Because then you that. do hear the police come in. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, I don't know. But those are the genuine police the coming. Yeah. I, I saw, I'm sure I recognised one of them from the police station earlier, but it's just a bit like, who, who, it, it's just, we need, we need bodies here. We need yeah. people to die, but yeah. we don't, we haven't introduced them at this point. Yeah. So they are, we, we need, we need an action oriented climax mm. as well. Yeah. Which these stories don't traditionally have. Uh, a film noir but but because I think the era we're in there's an expectation that you've got to have the big exciting shootout mm. uh, a shootout in which uh, for all intents and purposes we think Bud might be killed when he gets shot in the face <laughs> Alex <laughs> he gets shot in the face yep which I've got a bit of a problem with yeah. he's shot he's, he's sort of Swiss cheesed in his body and then the face it's, shot is the one I'm thinking. That's probably got you. It's the Jaws four uh, scenario where Mario Van Peebles uh, gets eaten by a shark, and yet they decided they wanted a happy ending uh, <laughs> where he wheels up to the plane in the final scene in his wheelchair, and it's like Jake's alive. If you yeah. like, what? I completely forgot, which is really shameful of me. But even in the end, doesn't he just got his arm in a sling? Yep. and they're like, "Oh, buddy, I hope you're all right." Yep. Yeah, basically fine. <laughs> yeah. In fact, there were two endings there to uh, Jaws the Revenge, uh, one with Mario Van Peebles and one without. I'll get back to this. <laughs> yes. I'll get back to this. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, we're nearly hitting um, uh, uh, an hour. Okay, so, um, <laughs> uh, yes, uh, uh, Ever the Politician, Exley uh, gets another medal. Well, uh, just back a step. We didn't We didn't say uh, he kills Dudley <gasps> by shooting him in the back. Yeah. Which is such a lovely payoff because the first thing Dudley says to him is, would you be willing to shoot a hardened criminal in the back? And Ed Exley says no. And he kills him in the back. And yeah, this... Good. Brilliant. It's brilliant, that's isn't really it? <laughs> this is obviously... Are you going to bring up... The, he doesn't die in the book, uh, Dudley Smith. And uh, I find this puzzling. And again, without having read these books, I'm, you know, I, I'm ill-equipped to have this conversation, but... It's me. So uh, in the books, he survives through this book... And even into the end of the next book, White Jazz, the final book, yeah. his character of Dudley Smith ends up in a retirement home, which seems strange, like, and lacks payback. <laughs> yeah, but that's the world of James Elroy. Like, right. a lot of the time, criminals don't pay. And, and the difference in the, in, the, in the novel LA Confidential is that because this is a series of books, the, the reader is, it's always been, it's already been established in the previous book that Dudley Smith is a villain, mm. is the bad guy. And so there's no twist, there's no surprise. He's just a bad guy in this, in this story. So again, it's very different with his storyline, but, you know, much more, much more satisfying. Oh, yeah. Uh, as an audience member in this film, but I think if you read the books, you know, this is, that's the world that he's. 
capturing. It's great where he says, hold your badge up so they know you're a police officer. <laughs> yeah. He's like, that's, that's, that's what tips him over the edge. He's like, you... Uh, and then, yes, uh, so Exley uh, gets himself another medal because you need two heroes. You can't just have uh, Dead Dudley Smith as a hero. You're going to want two heroes. So he gets a second medal uh, and uh, Dudley gets to keep his reputation and isn't revealed as the big bad. Uh, uh, but in better news, Bud is alive. <laughs> Bud is alive. <laughs> Bud is alive. Uh, and uh, so Ed Exley uh, gets to be king cop of like LA and uh, Bud goes to Arizona to make dresses and embroid <laughs> when, when, <laughs> when, he, he gets to check out when, he, when Ed leads in the car I think Bud should say to him it's Chinatown Ed <laughs> <laughs> um, that's pretty much all I've got. Anything uh, Anything else? I've got a couple of bits. So yeah. I, uh, on the Blu-ray of this release, uh, they've got the whole uh, TV pilot that they made in 2000, which I watched. Oh, the Kiefer Sutherland Kiefer one. Kiefer Sutherland is Jack Vincent. Mm. He's okay. the lead character. Uh, a couple of actors I do not recognise as the other two. Melissa George is Lynn. Oh, I love her. Uh, Eric Roberts is Pierce Patchett. <laughs> And I think main I think, although she's not listed in the credits, I think Mena Savari is Marilyn Monroe and she plays a role in this. But it's very bad. It's very bad. It's it's um Keith Sullivan's playing Jack Vincent's very Jack Bauer. It's yeah. quite a different performance. That's why I heard. I heard it's just uh, kind of a grizzled. regular cop show. It's like it this... felt like that. Mm. It felt like that. And there was the sequel. Have you, are you going to mention the, the the fact that there was a sequel planned in which Guy Pierce and Russell Crowe were going to return um and it was going to be set in the 70s in... Uh, the late Chadwick Boseman was uh, going. I just read that today. To I, I'm, I'm super surprised. I didn't hadn't heard the Chadwick Boseman story. I, I had because for years they've talked about doing a sequel, and I, I would have liked to have seen a sequel. Yeah. For me though, that should have stopped when the moment sadly Curtis Hansen died mm. about five years ago, four years ago, and I think it is a Hansen Helgelin thing. I think once he was gone as the writer and the director, I felt like they that was it for that project. I think it was uh, it was. Uh, Brian Helgeland on 42 uh, was when he first spoke to Chadwick Boseman mm. about it. It's what it said, but like you say, it just came out in the press uh, literally this month. Yeah. Right then, the bits. Yeah, uh, should we do the bits? <laughs> All right, let's do the bits. Uh, okay, uh, best scene, uh, Christopher. Uh, it's got to be the Rolo Tomasi Cromwell moment. I remember being in the cinema and gasping. Um, but there's little bits in it that I like, like as he's getting as he gets shot. Kevin Spacey's trying to get a bit of coffee off his finger that spilled onto his finger, which is why you're not expecting it. It's a, such a simple thing, but you don't expect someone to get shot when there's a bit of coffee dripping on the finger that they're trying to get off. <laughs> uh, that that line, "Have you a valediction, boyo?" It's just a perfect line. Seeing the light goes out in his out in his eyes. It's just I love it. Yep, uh, I agreed. That's mine as well, Victoria. Really? Yeah, this scene, this scene I've picked. I can't believe we didn't talk about it more, but it's good because then I can talk about it now. When uh, Russell Crowe goes to see Ed to kick the living shit out of him because he finds out about him uh, being with Lynn, and he is beating the shit out of him, and Ed actually manages to squeeze out a little bit of the plot that they're involved in, and then you see. The acting, Russell Crowe, the light goes on and he wants to kill this person, but he also wants to be smart and he wants to do the right thing and he wants to be good. So he throws a chair out of the window instead. And mm. in that moment, he's just like, fuck's sake, like, I do want to kill you, but I will be smart, mm. but I still have all this energy 
and all this anger and I need to do something with it, so I'm going to throw a chair through a window. Yeah. It's amazing! <laughs> no, I agree. <laughs> uh, although, it is our second Russell Crowe destroying a chair moment. That's true. No, it's our third. Is it? Yeah, he, he, breaks two, he breaks two chairs and throws one out the window. It's some of the best chair acting I've ever seen. <laughs> Agreed. What? Oh, there's face acting, <laughs> yeah. there's chair acting. All yeah. right. Agreed. Uh, MVW, Victoria. Russell Crowe mm. because of the, the chair acting <laughs> and the, the face acting. The three moments. When he's trying not to be the person that beats the shit out of people, that's when he's he's just unbelievably good. So when he asks Lynn out and immediately regrets it, the chair through the window, uh, when he thinks he's going to be a real detective, he it's weird. He is, he is a bad person in the way that he comports himself, the things that he does to possibly innocent people. Or There's a very like grey area. But... He, and this is pre him telling you the story about the radiator, which is horrible. He, to me, seems like a little boy, and that you need to, you want to look after him, and you want him to be good, and you're really, really rooting for him to do the right thing. Mm. And he seems like a sweetheart, like he just does. But yet he's, you don't see him do anything that isn't nasty and violent and horrible. But you, you would feel really safe with him. It's so, it's such a strange mix. Mm. Like he's done such an amazing job with that character, Christopher. Uh, I've written down some weird stuff here. Um, okay. <laughs> Australia. Australia. Um, well done, Australia. They, they gave us the two lead actors and the mentalist in this film. <laughs> so I'm kind of coupling that with casting director Marley Finn. Um, she is the one that found Guy Pearce and Russell Crowe, got them in front of Curtis Hansen. So she launched multiple careers. Uh, for better or worse, I think, obviously, Russell Crowe's career has been very different to Guy Pearce's. I think he fulfilled his potential uh, much better. Uh, but I'm going to go with um, Guy Pierce's teeth. Right. So um, the audition tape for this movie, the, the audition that Guy Pierce did is on, is on the Blu-ray mm. and he's got very crooked teeth. And Curtis Hansen said to him, um, we want you to play Ed Exley, but you've got to get your teeth filed down. Oof. You've got to get your teeth sorted because oh, Ed Exley needs needs to be perfect. He needs to have a perfect smile. He needs to have perfect teeth. And Guy Pierce did not like the sound of having his teeth filed down. He said, that sounds too painful. I'm not doing it. I don't fancy that. So he got caps. Uh, Guy Pierce has had caps ever since then. He has beautiful teeth. And having watched that documentary just before I watched it this week, I couldn't stop looking at his teeth. <laughs> they're beautiful. <laughs> Except they're slightly too big for his mouth. And he said he did find it hard to do the accent with new teeth <laughs> in this film. He had to do extra hard accent acting. So wait, are they not... Is that not the same thing? But because a lot it's a cap's different to veneers. Because in America, most a lot of people have their original teeth filed down, and then they have veneers put over the top. So I, I'd imagine that if he was going to have caps put on, he would have actually had them filed down as well. That's why so many Americans have great teeth because mm. they just file down your original teeth. My front teeth are caps. Oh, they really? so not my teeth out my eighteenth birthday. Oh, yeah. I remember you telling us that. Yeah, me and me and Guy have a lot in common. Um, just because I know you're. You, you, you want to be short. Russell Crowe's from New Zealand. Oh, yeah. yeah. I just, but he lived, he's he lived, lived all his Australia. life in Australia. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apologies. That is a, that is a mistake. Um, okay, my MVW is New Zealander, Russell Crowe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I believe they're called Kiwis. <laughs> uh, 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 for all the reasons that we've discussed, uh, you mentioned Victoria. He is absolutely incredible. Whatever happened to him as an actor between 1995's virtuosity and this, it was a good <laughs> thing. <laughs> Something good happened between those two movies. And uh, finally, uh, what would you change, uh, Victoria? So, two things. When Lynn 
is at the end and she's reconciled with Bud, she should have let her hair go back to brunette because that would have been a cute touch. Mm. But then a second bigger thing. So when Ed Exley and Bud White go to the DA's office to tell him that they know everything, they know about Dudley, Guy Pierce sets Bud on the DA, right? And that annoyed me because I want, actually it's because I want it to be more Bud's story than it is Ed's and it kind of is Ed's story by the end, I think. Mm. So I don't think it should have just been a, a, a straight reverse where it's like, okay, all of a sudden Ed Exley is the muscle and Bud White is the brains, but something smarter in that moment that pays respect to the fact that Bud White has tried to go on this journey, not just, he's like, right, okay, get him, basically. <laughs> and he does, and it works but, or, you know, just something, you could even have something funny there in that moment where he's like, get him. And he says, no, and he does it a different way or whatever. But not just throughout this whole film, I have watched this man struggle to be better than he is. And when it comes to it, the man that you've bonded with against all odds uses you like the weapon that you are. And that's not good enough for me. And that's it. All right. Chris? I found this was a bit of a journey. So for Chinatown, I didn't really have much to say apart from, you know, truncating certain scenes that we talked about. But nothing really specific. And I've always thought LA Confidential is a perfect movie in my head. Mm. I'm not going to have any changes for that. But actually, I've got a list. <laughs> <laughs> I was surprised myself. I'm not happy with James Cromwell's accent. Um, don't shoot Bud in the face, then have him live. <laughs> shoot him everywhere else, but not in the frigging face. Shoot him through the cheek. I think you're allowed that. Go um, on. That happy ending with them driving off into the sunset with the line, uh, some men get the world, others get ex-hookers in a trip to Arizona. I, fi- I feel it's weirdly out of place, that kind of happy ending. I know there's, you know, making Dudley the hero is dark of the story, but it's just it just feels tacked on. That It doesn't feel honest to me. Um, but my actual change is I would have given Kim Bassinger a lot more to do. I know she won the Oscar for the film, but her character only seems to be there to listen to the stories, the men tell her, and to serve their motivations. And so, you know, it's what you said. Uh, that I, I really felt that moment when they were in bed together. And I'd, I'd written that down, but you said it all like she should, she should have stories of her own to tell. I think it would have made it a richer film for that. So, Mine is uh, a very small thing, but um, it's the bit where uh, the girl we see with the black eyes in the car that Russell Crowe approaches at the very start, and then later on she's dead. She's died in the night time, and we see her <laughs> in the morgue. And Russell Susan Crow- Lafferts, I think. Yes. 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 And Russell Crowe sees her, and as the audience, you see him acknowledge who she is. And I certainly recognised her from the start. And I really, really didn't feel that in a film that never uses any other stylistic tics or anything else, having the split screen of her moment earlier, talking to him from the back of the car going, hey, what are you worried about, mister? I'm fine. I'm like... I, w- I didn't need that. Yeah. I w- they do, I w- they do it again later, though. They oh, do. do they? Yeah, with Stensland or no, with, Meeks, what, with Meeks. Meeks. With yeah. Bud Meeks, you get the flashback. And oh. it's weird. It's a very weird stylistic choice, though. Yeah, I, I didn't notice the other one, actually. I just thought in that moment, because it's split screen as well. So you're seeing... Like, it's the 100% f- that came out of audience testing. 100% that <laughs> yeah. the audience did not know what was happening. And yeah. they were like, we've got to do something. I just... Yeah, I, and I, I think, you know, it, it lowers the film in that moment mm. because a film that sort of is always, like I said earlier, it just walks that line perfectly between challenging you but not being confusing in that moment it lowers itself to uh, the stupidest person in the room yeah um so i didn't like that i'd just like to do a shout as well i forgot to say this earlier mrs laffert who plays her mother she's, so, she's good. so good in yeah. that film it's mm. really disturbing who yeah. this woman is yeah yeah 
Although I thought she'd done something bad. There is a bit where she's like, don't go in there. Don't go in there. I was like, she's killed someone. No, but that's what it's supposed to mean. Gwenda Deacon. I wanted to give her, because I'm sure no one ever mentions her when they talk about this film, but I think she's really good in her two little seats. (laughs) Right, that is LA Confidential uh, done. We end with Gwenda. Thank you. Um, (laughs) Let's do the verdict, shall we? Um, Who wants to go first? You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! Vicky. Oh no. Okay. Um right, so I I do think even on second viewing, I still think Chinatown can be a little bit inaccessible and a bit pleased with itself in some of the scenes. Like some of the scenes do feel a bit baggy, and I don't think that's just to modern eyes. Um the scene it's so stupid. The scene the library bit is too long. There's a scene where we watch Hollis go down to the beach. And that goes on, it feels like forever. And mm. I don't need to see all of that. I don't really care about who Hollis is. I just want to spend more time with Jack Nicholson. And I have loved LA Confidential deeply for many, many years. But then watching it again, it's, it is, and I suppose it's supposed to be, but it is quite trashy. And it, it doesn't have the class of Chinatown. And it isn't supposed to, but if we are comparing them. So then let's just take it down to the two things that I like the most, which is Jack Nicholson and Russell Crowe, who are both incendiary in these films. But I think Jack Nicholson edges it, so Chinatown. Wow. Interesting. 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 You're next, Alex. Uh, so, for a start, they're both incredible films. Watching Chinatown for the first time uh, was a real experience. Uh, uh, very, very, very difficult to pick. Uh, so, me being me, uh, I've gone for uh, a me reason uh, why I've picked uh, the film that I am picking. Because uh, you, you all know me. Yeah, you know what I like, and I do like a happy ending, <laughs> and <laughs> I like uh, I like an ex hooker in Arizona uh, and an ex the getting promoted to King Cop or whatever they call it. <laughs> I prefer that to fade on away with a fucking hole in her head. <laughs> it's it's not a feel good ending that I was hoping for after that journey. Um, there are other reasons. I just enjoyed LA Confidential a bit more. It spoke to me a bit more. I like that kind of filmmaking, but really. I like a happy ending after being on a journey like that. So I am picking LA Confidential. Interesting. Chris has the deciding vote. He loves it on his goes. <laughs> 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 only, only when I'm sure. And the weeks when I'm not sure, like this week, it's, it's, I don't like it as much. Um, okay, with LA Confidential, I love the economy of storytelling. I don't think there's a wasted moment or line. I love the three protagonists, the journey they go on, like the Wizard of Oz, um, <laughs> the, the way you're constantly having to reassess them. Uh, the only negative, I didn't really go into it when we were talking about it, but I think there are a few too many coincidences in the plot in LA Confidential when you when you sort of take a step back, which is not hugely satisfying. Um, and I thought that weirdly, the weirdly happy ending uh, doesn't sit right with me. Um, but it should have won Best Picture that year. We didn't say that. It lost to Titanic. Yeah. should have won. Um, I try and watch them in the right order of uh, chronological order. And this week I didn't. And so I watched LA Confidential first. And so when I'm watching Chinatown afterwards, the whole time I've, I was thinking LA Confidential's got this in the bag. Surprise me. Mm. This is not doing it. This is not doing it. But then the last 20 minutes of Chinatown happens. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. The opposite of LA Confidential. Uh, the non-happy ending. Mm. And the futility and the sadness... Uh, and it made me remember why that script and those performances are so celebrated. And I knew it had to win. So I've gone for Chinatown <sighs> because of the ending. Wow. So you picked, you've gone for the movie where the incestuous dad gets to live the rest of his life with his own daughter. Because I think it's the, the more believable ending. I think it's the real ending. 
Wow, Chinatown is the winner this week. I, I, have we had a few weeks? This is the second week in a row where I've lost. Do you think of it as a competition? I certainly do. I, don't, <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> yeah. It is a competition. Oh, okay. Between two films, but I, you know, I just, uh, yeah, it's, it's just interesting. But yeah, I'm, I'm happy. It was a close call this week. I just think LA Confidential is. More fun. That's how it goes, though, you know? Let's not end with your opinion. Let's end with what won. <laughs> I was coming to that. So, Chinatown is the winner this week. Congratulations. Uh, all right. Let's look ahead to next week. Um, there was a couple of heavy movies, that was. Uh, Victoria, uh, what are you going to do for us next week? Remind us of the clue, first of all, that you gave us on Monday's episode. The clue was women can't live with them, can't look after your kids without them. Right. So... Mm. Uh, I am going to give Chris, the hand that rocks the cradle, and okay. Alex, a single white female. All right, cool. Oh, belters. <laughs> Nasty. That's a great combination. Um, all right, great. The hand that rocks the cradle and... Single white, Single white female. Those are our movies for next week. So go away, do your homework. Uh, and as you're doing your homework, uh, just get on your phones and uh, subscribe to us and rate and review us on any of these uh, sites that you get your podcasts from, Apple, Spotify or other. Uh, it is hugely appreciated by us. Uh, you can find out more information at ClashPod on Twitter. Oh, we just got a new Instagram, haven't we, in case... Uh, yes. In case uh, we do Instagram. ClashPod. Go to ClashPod on Instagram and hopefully there'll be some fun stories cool, cool, and cool. pictures and stuff like that. Uh, but also, you know, if you're a traditionalist, uh, you can even email us, show at ClashPod.com. So many ways to get in touch. Thank you for listening. Congratulations to Chinatown. Commiserations to LA Confidential. Back on Monday. Bye-bye. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the ACAST Creative Network. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.